Let's pray together as we stand. Father, as we come now to your word, uh, we're always entering sometimes a little bit of an odd, strange world to us. It's a world that describes a life that doesn't come naturally really to any one of us, and yet um, you promise that it is the life which is really full of life, the life which is really full of the joy that we most deeply desire and need. And so we ask that your spirit will work in our hearts, that you'd you'd sharpen and and tune and focus our hearing, um, that we would hear what it is that you want to communicate and that you would change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. And um, it would be helpful if you would turn back to page uh, 12 in the service sheets to that reading, that first reading there, the reading from Colossians. Um, We're jumping back into the uh, book of Colossians today. Uh, Colossians, uh, if you weren't here with us in the fall, Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, a young church, a new church, not too dissimilar from our own, uh, in a a little town called Colossae. And uh, we spent, we explored the first half of it in the autumn, in the fall. And uh, and in the first part of this letter, what what the Apostle Paul does is he's coaching this new church. And, And as we listen to it, in a sense, we're receiving this coaching as well. Um, Paul is coaching this new church in, in what it looks like to live out Jesus' vision for a church. So we, we want to be a church. Colossae wants to be a church. Emmanuel wants to be a church that, that, that lives out what Jesus wants church to be about. So um, the book of Colossians helps us do that. In the first half, last autumn, last fall, what we saw is that fundamental to being a church that really lives out what Jesus wants church to be about is um, that we are to be a people who are just captivated by Jesus. That that's just central. That um, the more captivated we are by Jesus, the more fully we experience and live out all that Jesus wants us to live and experience and live out. Now, today, we're beginning the second half of Colossians. And uh, over the next few weeks, this is what we're going to discover. Here's the main idea. Jesus wants us to be a church full of people who are being changed. Uh, Jesus wants us to be a church uh, that is marked, that all of us here are marked by a deep and a profound transformation. So um, Jesus is not interested in just uh, us continuing to be just like we are right now. It's it's not that, you know, where you're at is so much bad. It's just Jesus embodies. Uh, intends for there to be continual movement and transformation. He wants to work in us so that over time, uh, we go from being a people who are primarily concerned with ourselves, and he wants to change us until we become a people that is primarily concerned with Jesus and with one another and with the world. And even as I say that, that probably doesn't come as a big surprise to a lot of us, but just for a moment, feel the force of that challenge. Because it means that if you're here and you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, then it means that Jesus really does want to push you, move you along. It means that your present experience of Jesus, 
is not what Jesus intends to be the mark of your life in the future. He wants to move you. And that takes courage. And it takes waking up out of any kind of complacency. And on the other hand, if you're here and you're just investigating Jesus, and you're just kind of thinking, well, we'll, we'll see how this goes, not sure that I'm on the Jesus team or not, you know, great. But understand, and just as a kind of full disclosure, understand that Jesus intends to change you too. And whenever Jesus intends to change us, it can be a very scary thing. It's a good thing, but it does take courage. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this uh, to say this. The question for today is, how is it that Jesus transforms us? How does Jesus affect real change in us? And I want to point out three things. First of all, I want to talk about an obstacle, a big obstacle to Jesus changing us. And then we'll talk about the motive for Jesus to change us. And And then lastly, a little bit about the method. Obstacle, motive, method. First of all, obstacle. Take a look at the uh, Colossians reading. Um, We're going to focus on the first paragraph there. Next week, we're going to go into detail on the second paragraph. However, just notice right away, and you probably already noticed this. Do you notice it's full of commands? Um, And it's full of a particular kind of command. It's it's full of negative commands. Uh, Particularly the the second paragraph is full of commands that say, don't do whatever it is that comes. So, for instance, uh, if you look at verse 5, verse 5 is reasonably threatening to a lot of us because what it does, it's threatening to me, what it does is it says, hey, you know all these desires that you have bundled up in your soul? Uh, Don't desire some of those things. (laughs) Um, Some of those need to die. And I point that out because, uh, I I don't don't know about you, but... If I think about that verse and the rest of that paragraph for almost any length of time at all, I find them very threatening. And here's why I find it threatening. There are times when when I'm reading the Bible and the Bible gives me a command, particularly a command to not do something. I find them often threatening because as I think about them for any length of time at all, they seem to threaten Two things that are very, very important to me. They seem to threaten my identity, and they seem to threaten my my path to happiness. At least they feel like they do. Let me explain what I mean by that. You can see if you identify with it. Um, We've talked about this before. One of the most important questions that all of us struggle with is the question of identity. What does it mean to be me? Right? What does it mean to really deeply be me? And that's a question all of us wrestle with. It's it's an important question. It's also a very sensitive question. And very often, uh, you can see if you identify with this, very often the way uh, uh, people answer that question, the way I typically answer that question if I'm kind of in my default setting, is um, what I do is I I look at my desires. I look at it as what, what what is it that I want? Uh, and you know, what kind of relationships do I want? What kind of career do I want? What kind of lifestyle do I want? What kind of uh, future do I want? And, and very often what, I, what I'll tend to do is I'll take those desires and, and those desires will then tell me who I am. And then those desires will, uh, will chart my default path to happiness. That's, that's what I do. 
And therefore, what happens is my, I don't think about this normally, but just kind of my default is that my desires give me something of my identity and something of my destiny, who I am and where I want to go. Now, when I'm thinking like that, and then I come to scripture, to the Bible, or, or, or I hear a command that comes at me and basically says, listen, you know those desires? Don't trust all of those. Some of them need to be put aside. What happens is I find that deeply threatening because it feels like the text, it feels like God is attacking my identity and my destiny, who I am and how I'm going to get happy. And I point this out because this is a very important obstacle to a deep transformation by Jesus. And the reason it's an obstacle is this. If that's how my mind works, then whenever I hear a biblical command, it'll sound like God is an enemy who's trying to force me into an identity that doesn't fit and is trying to ultimately to kill my happiness. And therefore, instinctively, I find myself, you know, stiff-arming God. Stiff-arming the text. Can I trust it? And if that's the way my mind goes, it means that I'll never really trust God and I'll never really be able to obey him freely. And, and, and what, what happens is I won't change. I'll just kind of stay where I'm at. And I wonder how many of us, um, you probably don't put it this way, but how many of us, if we look deep within our hearts, um, when we think of God, we think of God and we have a little suspicion that he's more like an enemy than he is like an ally. Consider that for a little bit. Now, that's one of the obstacles that we need to keep in mind to real transformation. But now, let's pivot. And let's talk about the motive for real transformation. And here's the good news. The good news is, and you know I'm going to say this, the good news is God's not your enemy. God's not, God actually, is, he's not out to crush your identity and kill your happiness. It's the opposite. He's here to give a new identity and a more secure path to joy. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 1. Um, before Paul gets into the commands in the second paragraph, he has the first paragraph, and he deals with the motivation. That's where we're going to focus. Verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at God's right hand. Now, pause. Ask the question, Paul, why should I seek things that are above where Christ is? Well, answer, do you see that in the very beginning? Because you've been raised with Christ. That's going to be important. That's the motive. We've got to figure out what that means. Keep going. Look at verse 2. He says, set your mind on things that are above. He repeats himself. Not on things that are on the earth. To which I ask, why, Paul? What's the motive for seeking putting my mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Well, look at verse 3. Here it is. Because, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, here's what I want to show you out of those verses. According to Paul, we seek Jesus, we obey Jesus, which in that is, you know, all the commands are included in that. Why? Because he gives us a new identity, a new destiny, a new 
secured path to joy. And those things together knit our hearts to Christ in allegiance. Identity, destiny, allegiance. Let me show you. First of all, identity. Look at verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Later on, he says, Christ is your life. He's talking about destiny, or identity there. Just think with me. What we were just saying, everybody thinks about the question, what does it mean to be me? And most of us, like we were just saying, um, sort of, uh, we we construct our self-identity And then we spend a lot of time performing it, right? And a lot of time protecting ourselves. We want to make sure that nobody nobody touches our identity. So we we construct it, we perform it, and and then we protect it. Now, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with all that. It's pretty natural. But the problem is, and just think with me for a minute here, it's very hard to be focused on performing my self-constructed identity and protecting my identity, and at the same time, love other people well. Particularly, it's easy to love people who are supportive and like feed into it, and, and, but it's hard to love people who we find threatening. Uh, let me talk about me for a second. Um, if I find somebody who threatens me, right? Uh, if I find somebody who I feel like they undermine my identity or they're a block to my path and, uh, to happiness, what happens is immediately, as soon as I recognize somebody like that, I start lashing out. I may, I may not do it, you know, obviously, but in my soul I am. Um, you, you know, and like if you want to see ugly, nasty Gollum, Jim, like offend who I think I am uh, or, or, stand, or impede my path to happy Jim, all of a sudden, I go golem, you know? And it's not, it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. Um, at least it's not pretty in my heart. But the point is, this, the, the problem is self-constructed identity and self-achieved uh, path to happiness and joy, just like it can tend to make us keep God at arm's distance because we want to protect ourselves, it can also end up keeping other people at arm's distance because we want to protect ourselves from the people who threaten us. It kills our ability to love freely. And this is where Jesus reaches in and changes everything and and gives us the the seed of real transformation. Because if you're a Christian, you've been raised with Christ, verse 1. What does that mean? Well, in that phrase is encapsulated the cross, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection and all that that means. But it means this. When Jesus died upon the cross... He took upon himself everything that is ugly in us. All that uh, hostile self-protection that comes running out of my heart when I feel threatened. All of that was put upon Jesus. So that all of my guilt and all of my shame and all that I tried to hide from other people and all that I'm desperately frightened somebody else will find out about me, all of that was placed upon Jesus all of my lack of love, everything, so that Jesus took upon himself my false identity that very often motivates me to do not very nice things to other people, or at least inhibits my ability to love them. All of that he took upon himself on the cross. And when he died, it died. That's why Paul says in verse 3, you've died with Christ. But then in Jesus' resurrection, something remarkable happened because in Jesus' resurrection, he hands to me, 
He says, if you belong to me, then all that I am, my identity, is just handed over to you. So that when I trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus rises from the dead, and he says, all that I am, I give to you, Jim, son of God, lover of enemies, perfectly righteous past, beloved of the Father, all of that, Jesus hands to me. I don't perform it. I don't earn it. It's just freely given to me without any charge. And that's the offer that he gives to every one of us. That's what it means to be in Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You have a whole new identity. And the thing is, it's not an identity that is imposed that doesn't fit. It's actually the identity that we were made for. It's the identity that we all desire. It's the identity, ultimately, that it's that desire for this identity in Christ that's driving our pursuit of the whole question, what does it mean to be me? And so when we receive it, it's not an identity that doesn't fit. It's the identity that we were designed for. And so it's free, meaning it gives freedom. And it means that we can rest from that fear and that anxiety to invent and perform and protect because all that died with Jesus. And so Jesus gives us a new identity. You've been raised with Christ. He is your life. But then secondly, he also gives us a newly secured path to joy. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Which is a remarkable thing. Just consider what that means. Because it means that if you belong to Jesus, then Jesus certifies your eternal joy. It means that Jesus is your path to uh, real happiness, glory that lasts forever. Which is a remarkable thing. Jesus actually says um, to his disciples on the night before he died, as he was facing death, he says, um, I am going to the cross in order that the joy that I know might now be in you. And so all the love that Jesus experiences from the Father, we read about Jesus' baptism, you know, the Father's affection towards Jesus in his baptism, that is given to us. All the love that Jesus returns to the Father and all the pleasure involved in loving the Father in close intimacy is imparted to us by the Holy Spirit. All the joy of heaven, all that will be yours in measure now and infinitely in the future. Now consider all of this and go back to that obstacle. That obstacle to transformation, which is a deep-seated suspicion that God is trying to stand in the way of my pursuit of happiness. And friends, the cross of Jesus Christ says nothing could be further from the truth because Jesus died in order to open up the door that was closed and locked to us. The door to true eternal joy. To the door to really knowing who you are. Now, you ask, Jim, what does that really have to do with transformation? Because, I mean, that's nice. Jesus did lots of nice things. That's great. What does that do? Well, here's what it does. When you see Jesus giving you a new identity, and when you see him securing eternal joy, it knits your heart to Christ in allegiance. Doesn't it? Think of the person in your life who's loved you best. Don't you feel a loyalty to that person and allegiance? 
And that's how, trans- that's how Jesus transforms us. He gives us all of this free of charge. And when you really receive and when his love becomes vivid, and when his grace becomes vivid, then you look at him and, and just naturally your heart returns in a bond, attachment of allegiance and affection. It means you find yourself looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, you have given everything for me, and now I want to give everything for you. And when that happens, friends, it is just checkmate for change. It's checkmate for transformation. And the reason is because when you're bound to Jesus in that kind of loyalty and affection and love, what will happen is you'll come back to the Lord's commands and they'll make sense. You'll come back to Jesus' commands, and, and when, at first they looked threatening, but now when you've seen all that Jesus has done for you, and when you're bound to him in affection, you come back to the commandments, and they, they start to make sense. So, for instance, um, the command in there, um, don't use obscene talk, for instance. You look at that command, and all of a sudden you, you kind of go, well, sure. I, I, I want to use my language to depict the beauty of Jesus Christ. I don't, want to use, I don't want to use my language to talk about ugly things. Why do that when you can talk about the beauty of Christ and reflect it in some way? Or the command about anger and wrath and, you know, don't fly off the handle when people offend you. Well, you'll see that command and, you know, all of us agree that you shouldn't fly off the handle, right? That's an easy one, but it's hard to live out. And when you're really attached to Jesus Christ, and when he has your loyalty, you'll, you'll find yourself hurt by other people, and you'll find yourself saying, it's not okay that I was hurt like that. That's not good. But nonetheless, Jesus loved me when I hurt him. And therefore, my ambition is to be somebody who loves those whom I have good reason to hate. Or you hear about the commands in verse 5 about coveting and money and sex and greed and all of those sorts of things, and your heart will say, I am no longer defined by my desires. I am defined by Jesus Christ. He tells me who I am. And I want to use these God-given desires in ways that honor him. And I trust that he is taking me to eternal happiness that's deeper than anything I could achieve myself. Do you see that Christianity isn't mainly about outward behavior management? It's not mainly about that. It's not mainly outward conformity in. It's the opposite. It's inward, changing how you relate to Jesus Christ, inward and out. It's deeper and it's more radical than all of those things. And that's how Jesus wants to change us. And we'll get into the nitty-gritty and the specifics of it over the next few weeks. But the fundamental thing is Jesus wants to come and he wants to take that obstacle, that, that suspicion in your heart that God cannot be trusted, that he's here to crush you and take away your identity and kill your joy. He wants to take that obstacle and he wants to throw it away. And he wants to say, look in my eyes. Look in the eyes of a holy God who loved you when you did not deserve it and gave his life to give you the identity you were designed for, to give you the eternal happiness you desire, and then look in his eyes until you find your soul attached to him in allegiance, and in that moment, then come to the commandments of God, and they will be sweet.
Let's pray for a second. Father, when we come to your word and when we speak of uh, transformation and change, it brings up all kinds of things. It, it, for some of us, it, it, you know, we, we, we hear these commands and we're like, yeah, but, you know, I've been told all my life I should behave well. And then we just kind of stop listening. And then others of us look at these commands and we say, yeah, you know what, I really should. I really should. I, I feel terrible. I don't, but I should. And then there's some of us who are completely um, just, we, we feel kind of dead inside. It's like, I, we just don't care. And then there's others of us that look at this and say, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, I desire that you would change me. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would come even right now, and that you would do the work that needs to be done in each one of us. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would come, and even right now, those of us who look at you and, and deep in our hearts, we don't think we can trust you, we pray that you would come and that you would remove that obstacle right now, and that and then, by your Holy Spirit, you would warm our hearts persuade us of your love. Don't let us stay imagining that you are a God that is to be kept at arm's distance. Will you persuade us? And then, Father, will you grant your spirit to turn the eyes of our hearts upon Jesus Christ? Will you make him more than a historical figure? Will you make him more than a theory? Will you make him more than a an abstract set of philosophical statements. Will you make them real to us? And will you give us the faith that we cannot muster up so that we look in the eyes of Jesus and we say, you are my life. You tell me who I am. You are my path to eternal joy. And I am yours, Lord Jesus Christ. So do whatever it takes to get that done. In Jesus' name, amen.